It's nothing like coffee that tastes like chloroseptic cough drops. It's uh, good to have you guys here this morning. Grab your Bibles if you would. We're going to be in Second Peter uh, chapter 1 again, and we're going to be jumping um, in several different places uh, this morning as we continue our series called Unlocking the Secrets of the Christian Life. And um, I've really enjoyed this series, uh, I, you know, and I kind of get into these series, each one, and I, I enjoy them all, but this has been really a fun one for me, um, and just, just to kind of think through what it is to, to live the Christian life and what Peter gives us in this passage in Second Peter, and, and using that as a jumping off point to talk about some important things in our faith, and um, so I hope it's been, it's been beneficial for you as well. So we're going to continue that this morning. Um, how many of you guys like snakes? Anybody? Weirdos. <laughs> I, I, I really don't like snakes. Uh, snakes. Snakes freak me out a little bit. and um, Maybe it's because of a traumatic experience that I had when I was, I think I was about 10. Um, we, had, we lived in a, a farmhouse, then, and it was really, really old, and, the, and the, the cellar was really disgusting and old and that kind of thing. And so we, li- we lived in this farmhouse, and it was, um, it was one of those farmhouses where if you went down in the cellar and look at the floor above you, it didn't have joists. It had logs as the, flo- as the floor joists. You know, it was, an, it was an old, old farmhouse. And one time we were down there. Uh, I went down there. I, don't, I have no idea why. My, I'm gonna, I'll blame it on my mom because she's not here. And uh, she probably told me to go down there or something. And I went down there, and there, there was a snake had gotten into our house. Anybody ever had a snake in your house that wasn't, inten- that wasn't supposed to be there? Yeah? Okay. Anybody had a snake that was supposed to be there? Yeah, that's what I figured. I figured there'd be a few of those too. But, um, but this snake was not supposed to be there. And so I go down into the cellar, and here's this snake, and it was eating uh, a, a, a mouse of some kind. And, and, and it just kind of, that was the way. It was one of those experiments, of course. I went and told my mom, I'm like, hey, mom, you got to see this. And then she came down and she screamed and, and you know, it, it became very traumatic for me. And she's like, I hate snakes and all this stuff. And, and so, I don't know, maybe that's why I can't stand snakes. And this is why I struggle with the, the, the continent of Australia. Although I think this is probably God's wisdom at work. God, God took the continent of Australia and decided that he was going to put seven of the ten most deadliest snakes on the planet on that island. And then he was going to put, same with spiders. I don't know if you know this, but this is true. So like, I think about Australia and everybody's like, oh, wouldn't it be great to go to Australia? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> Fine right here. Fine right here. But the interesting thing about poisonous snakes is this, that the, the baby snakes in some ways are actually more dangerous than adult snakes. And, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but here's what happens is, is, is baby snakes... They will, they will uh, you know, if they get in a situation where they're going to bite and, and use their venom or, or whatever the case might be, they will bite and they will use all of their venom all at once. Where, where adult snakes don't do that. Adult snakes, number one, will use other tools to defend themselves or to attack, right? And they'll, they'll, they'll save their venom, if you will. And they, even if they do bite and use their venom, they'll limit the amount of venom that they use in that singular bite so that they still have some in reserve. And so you think about that, and, and really what that is, is that's, that's, that's a baby snake not, not knowing how to control itself. And because of that lack of control, it will just express all of its venom, and because of that, it can be more dangerous in some ways to be bit by a, by a baby venomous snake 
than an adult, but it also puts that baby snake in danger because now it has no more defenses. It's gone. It's done. And so, and so, and so now it becomes more at risk. It's interesting when you think about that, and you think about this whole idea of self-control. We've been talking about, you know, uh, you know Peter talks about how God has given us everything we need for the, for the Christian life, for the godly life, right? And this foundation of faith, and to that foundation of faith, he added virtue, and then he added, he added knowledge, right? This morning, what we're adding is this. We're adding self-control. Peter tells us to furnish our faith with those other things, but then self-control. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, it says this. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. So self-control, you think about what, what is self-control? Well, it can be defined as restraint of one's emotions, impulses, or desires. Okay, and so you think about self-control, and you go, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it, John? Well, it is, but, but I don't know if we always think about this in a good way. Here's, here's another way that, here's the way I would like to phrase it. Self-control is mind control. Self-control is mind control. In other words, when we begin to think about what it is to have self-control, it isn't really about controlling our body. It's about controlling our mind. It's about controlling the thoughts that we have within the larger context of the life that we live. Is, this last week, of, of course, we had all kinds of... of uh, sanctity of life things, pro-life things going on. We had the sanctity, or the, the sanctity of life or the March for Life uh, that happened Friday and tens of thousands of, I don't even know how many um, people uh, went to Washington, D.C. and they marched uh, for the sanctity of life. And, and as a matter of fact, I think I was talking to uh, Pastor Dave over at Colorado Christian University and I think they took like 200 students there. And as a matter of fact, if you saw... Um, any headlines from that, you probably saw a bunch of students from, from Colorado Christian University because they were like in the front row. Uh, the 200 students that they brought were like front row marching, marching and that kind of thing. And so, and so, and so there's kind of been this, this huge push uh, for the sanctity of life. And I think it's, it's a really great thing to see um, really the momentum that that movement has in, in, a, in a variety of ways because we believe that every individual is created in the image of God. Um, born and unborn, and so and so it is, it is really great to see that happening. But you begin to think about what historically has led us to this moment in time, especially when it comes to that issue, and you go back all the way to the 1960s, and right around 1960, something significant happened in our culture, and that was the availability of birth control. The availability of birth control became widespread, and all of a sudden, people were able, able to... to to have this birth control option. And so the sexual revolution began, the free love movement began. And so, and so there was this kind of movement in, in the 60s and the 70s. I don't really remember the 60s. I wasn't alive. I don't really remember much of the 70s. I was very, very young. But from what I hear, you know, there, there was all kinds of movement about the free, the free love movement. And then the year I was born, 1973, something very significant happened, which, which was the anniversary of that was this last week as well, and you know this, and that was the, the decision that the Supreme Court made regarding in, in the Roe v. Wade decision. And what happened at that point in history is you had birth control up to that point, and, and you did have abortion because it was at the state level, but not every state. And so a lot of places it was illegal, some places it was legal, right? And in 1973, what happened 
is the Supreme Court said, said, hey, we're going to make this legal everywhere in the United States. And so abortion became much more readily available. And what happened was the culture create, created an atmosphere where sex outside of marriage became no big deal. And, and then you had the 70s and the 80s, and, and, it, and, it, and it continued to grow in the, in the years I was in high school. And there was all kinds of talk about, you know, how do we, how do we limit teen pregnancy and all these kinds of things. And in the, in the 80s, even into the 90s, you know, all, all kinds of talk about, well, you know, do we need to be distributing birth control in schools and, and all kinds of discussions going on in the, broad, in the broader culture. But the one discussion that wasn't going on, that probably was more important than, than all of those other discussions was the, was the discussion about self-control. It was the discussion about how do you control oneself? Now, you might think that this is a modern-day cultural issue, but really self-control is an issue that has, been, that has been an issue in a variety of ways, in a variety of areas, and I'm just using one example, since the beginning of humanity. What's interesting is as we think about this word that's used uh, in, in, in the passage that we have is, is that this word is almost always used in relationship to three areas of self-control. Sexual, food, and the tongue. Those three areas. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Are there three areas that are more difficult to, than, to control than those three things? It doesn't seem like, I can't really think of any. I mean, James talks about, uh, you know, the half-brother of Jesus, when he talks about the tongue, he, he, he says, if you can control the tongue, then you can you control everything. Then you, you've reached perfection, right? And there's, there's passages in Scripture, and many passages, we're going to look at one in Galatians 5 in just a second, that talk about this idea of self-control as related to sexual passions, a desire for food, and then the tongue. Here's what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5 when he's talking about the difference between walking by the Spirit and walking according to the flesh. Starting in verse 16, he says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discords, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to think about that passage that we just read for a moment. Think about the description that that creates. And if you think about what that describes, it's pretty hard to come to the conclusion that that does not describe our our, our culture today. As a matter of fact, our culture today doesn't say you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Our culture today, today says do whatever you want to gratify the desires of the flesh. As a matter of fact, our culture, if you begin to think about how, what its message to us is to embrace the desires that you have no matter what they are and to fulfill them with very few limitations. Maybe it might put on, uh, on, on 
you know, the idea of consent or something like that. Like, like if you want to fulfill these desires, it's fine as long as whoever you're fulfilling these desires with gives consent, then it's fine. In other words, the whole idea of self-control really isn't an issue. There isn't the idea that our, our passions should ever be mitigated in any way. Instead, it's fulfill your, fulfill your passions, fulfill all those things. But then Paul goes on in verse 22, and he contrasts the life of the flesh and the life, and the life of the spirit. And he says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So what does it look like to practice self-control? What does that that mean exactly for us? I mean, you, you think about about self-control and the, the, the whole idea is, is something that probably most of us, if we were asked, if, we, if, you were, if you were asked privately anyways, or maybe even publicly, and we said, hey, do you, do you think you have good self-control? You'd probably, oh, no, not really. And, may, and maybe for some of you, it might be, go, no, you know, my, man, my diet, man, I just can't. Man, I see cake and it's, it's like I just completely lose self-control. Like I'm just, I'm eating the cake, right? Like, I mean, for some of you, that's an issue. And it's a significant issue. Others of you, maybe it's, maybe it's related to the tongue. Man, I hear juicy rumor, and I don't know what it is. I know I shouldn't go and tell somebody else, but I, I really only just tell my really good friends the juicy rumor. Who do you think they tell? They're really good friends. What are you doing? You're gossiping, right? You're, you're participating in this desire to spread rumors, this passion to have dirt or whatever it is on somebody else, you're participating in that. You're not practicing self-control. The, the, percentage, the percentage of men that actively struggle with pornography is extremely high. It's huge. And you th- I think back about, about my, my history and, and how that has changed over my history. And, you know, when I was, when I was a teenager, it was hard to get that stuff. It's not hard anymore. It's everywhere. And, it, and, the, and the passions are right there. The, the fulfillment of our passions, whether it's food. I mean, you think, about, you think about the food issue and you think about the shows on TV, right? And they're all about this amazing food. Uh, you know, what's that one? The, the dives um, uh, guy... Diners, dives, and drive-ins, right? Or something, I don't know, whatever it is. But you go and have you watched this show? Have you looked at that food? I mean, you know, that, you look at that and you're like, man, if somebody eats that, they're gonna die instantly because they're, right? It's, but it's all about what? The taste, the fulfillment of the passion for food. Instead of eating to live, we live to eat. And we get it all messed up. We get it all backwards and we have these unfettered, unmitigated passions that we just fulfill. We don't even think about it. But God calls us to have self-control. As a matter of fact, in, in Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that what, is, what, what self-control is is an attitude of your minds. It's a changing of the attitude of your mind. Starting in verse 22 in Ephesians chapter 4. 
He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Listen to this, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Self-control is less about the action that follows what the mind thinks and more about what the mind thinks. In other words, when we think about self-control, we need to be thinking about our thought processes. Where do our thoughts go? What are we thinking about? You know, we could go to Romans chapter 12 if you want, and, and Paul talks about the renewing of our mind. And, 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 or you could go to Philippians 4.8 and it talks about what we should focus on with our, with our minds, whatever is pure. And, and you can go to all these, all these different places and it talks so much about what we, what we think and how we think. And so when you think about self-control, you ought to be thinking about mind control. What are my thoughts? Where do my thoughts go? Now here's, here's the difficulty. Our thoughts are like, like cats. Right? Uh, maybe yours aren't. Mine, my thoughts are like cats. I don't like cats, by the way. You know, cats and I have a have a um, antagonistic kind of relationship. I go, you know, I go to people's houses and they have cats, and I'm like, you know, they start following me, and you know, and part of it's I'm allergic to cats. Okay, that's part of it. Um, you know, but. But, but cats, and you know, they always have, there's that phrase people talk about, you know, it's like herding cats. You've heard people say, it's like herding cats. And sometimes our mind, the thoughts in our mind are like that. My, my, the thoughts in my mind are going all different directions all the time. It's hard for me to settle my mind down. And maybe, maybe you're like that, and, so, and it's, it can be difficult to control your thoughts and, to, and take every thought captive before God. It's a constant practice. It's a discipline. It's not something that's easy to do. I think sometimes we as Christians begin to think that living life according to the Spirit shouldn't take any effort because it involves the Spirit. I think that we think that when, when, when we live in subjugation to the Spirit, that everything will be easy in our life. But that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't teach that at all. It teaches that we need to discipline ourselves. We need to discipline our minds. The whole idea of self-control has inherent in that idea, the idea of discipline. But discipline for its own sake is difficult. As a matter of fact, I, I put it this way, discipline without direction is drudgery. Discipline without direction is, is drudgery. In other words, if you're disciplined just for the sake of discipline, then why bother? What is the point, right? Our discipline needs a direction. It needs a goal in mind. And Paul, in his letter to Timothy, the young pastor, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 says this, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, listen to this. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. If you read that text, what in that text would suggest to you that living the Christian life is something that is easy? I can't find anything. In other words, it says, it says we ought to strive, we ought to train. It compares our spiritual life to physical training. It says that physical training is of some value, right? But godliness is, is, has value for, for all things. There's the idea that the spiritual life, the Christian life, is a life that can kind of just happen to us is a bad idea. It is not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that our Christian life takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes striving. It takes training. It takes all of these things. If you, if you thought maybe before that the spiritual life, the Christian life, was really kind of an, an easy life, it, it was a life that would make, make things easy for me, that I would just kind of receive God's blessing, and, and there is blessing, but I, I would just kind of receive it and that I really wouldn't have to try at anything. It would just kind of happen to me that it's a completely false idea. Nowhere in scripture do you see that. Instead, what you see is the idea that there is, there is the self-controlled life, which requires discipline. It requires effort. And you begin to think about the idea. So Peter, Peter in, 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 uh, in, in 2 Peter 1 he, he talks about, hey, God's given you everything you need. The foundation is faith. To that, we added virtue, right? And to that, we added knowledge. And now we're adding to our knowledge. We're adding this idea of self-control. And then you begin to go back, as we did to Galatians chapter 5, and it said that the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit, is self-control. That isn't something that just happens to you. It's a fruit. In other words, it's if you're living a life according to the Spirit, this is what you'll see in that life, is the idea of self-control. When we have purpose for our discipline, then it becomes something that we will commit to, right? And, 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 and Paul gives this to Timothy when he, when he tells him, you gotta train yourself Right? And, and, and he says, you got to have all these things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come, he said in verse 8. In other words, the self-control has value in this life, but it also has value in the life to come. The holy life, the godly life, is something, and if you go to, to Romans chapter 8, it, it is, you know, Paul talks about, the, there's this, this end of the end of Romans chapter eight, Paul has this phrase and, and people like to get all bent out of shape about what it means in, re, in relation to predestination, all these things. And, and it says he's called and he's called and he's predestined, but to be conformed to Christ's likeness. And that is the goal of our self-discipline. That is the goal of our self-control is to be conformed to the Christ to, to Christ's likeness. And that will be given to us at some point but it's something we are to pursue in the meantime. In other words, when we go into that next life, we will have a Christ-likeness that we can't experience in this life. But even so, we pursue that in the here and now. It's kind of like we're practicing for the performance. We're working on it now so that when we get there, we understand how it's supposed to go. We live for the holy life the Christian life that is to come, holding promise both 
for the present life and the life to come. And in verse 10, that is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. We ought not think that the life we live now is completely disconnected from the eternal life we've been given. In fact, the life we live now is in pursuit of the eternal life that we've been given. That's why it requires discipline. Spiritual disciplines are spiritual habits. Spiritual disciplines are spiritual habits. This is important. Donald Whitney, in his his book uh, about spiritual disciplines, says this, the spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is really important because there's been a number of authors and uh, in recent years that have promoted spiritual disciplines that we don't find in scripture. And I just want to caution you that if you don't find a spiritual discipline in scripture, you should be suspect of it. As a matter of fact, I would suggest you don't need it. You just, just don't go down that road. It's, it's not necessary for your spiritual life, right? Second Peter 1 Peter says, God has given you all the things that you need for, your, for, your, for the godly life. You don't need it. And it, it, it's, even if it's not prohibited by Scripture, if it's not supported by Scripture, you don't need it. So then you begin to think about, okay, so what, what are spiritual disciplines? What are those things that I need to do to discipline myself in my spiritual life in order to to have a a fruitful spiritual life, to have those fruit of the spirit that we talk about, that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Well, I'm gonna put a a list up there for you and we'll talk about a few of these. The first one is this, the study of scripture. God has given us his word in numerous places throughout his word. He says says things like meditate on my word or study, study to show yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God, as it talks about in Timothy. Over and over, Psalm 119, where there's this idea, there's a, there's a, a, a joy in, in the revealed word of God, the law that is given, and there's a joy in that. We see the study of scripture as essential throughout all of scripture for the spiritual life. Study scripture. It's hard to know a God that you know nothing about. So study scripture. This is perhaps one of the most basic spiritual disciplines. You ought to have it as built into your habits in life, right? If, 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 if spiritual discipline is spiritual habits, then how is it built into the habits of your life? Do you get up in the morning a little bit early and read scripture? Do you stop, do you you drive to work a little bit early every day so that you can sit in your car for 10 or 15 minutes before you walk into work and just spend those 10 or 15 minutes reading scripture in your car? Do you you build it into your habit of living, your pattern of living so that it becomes natural to you? Do you, do you do it before something else? Here's my tendency every morning. This is what, this is what I, what my tendency is to want to jump into work like, like, like that, right? I just want to get to work. I get up, I shower, I get ready. I just want to get to work and get going. And so what I've forced myself to do is I don't allow myself to start 
work until I read scripture. And I don't know about you, but that's incredibly hard for me some days. Because you sleep at night and you're sitting there and you're thinking about all of these different things that I have to do. I've got to send this email. I've got to check on this. I've got to make that phone call. And then you get the feeling, and this is at least the feeling I get. Then you stop and you think, if I don't do it right now, then I'm going to what? Forget. Maybe you guys don't forget stuff. I forget stuff, right? And so, so I, that's my, it, it like weighs on me. And so I literally have to open my Bible and I, and I leave my laptop closed until I'm done reading scripture. Because if I, if I open my laptop, it's over. It's over. The scripture doesn't get read. That's just, that's me. I don't, you've got to figure out what your pattern is. Where do you put it in your life that you are consistently and habitually entering into God's word, reading God's word, studying God's word? Are you in a life group that studies the word of God? If you're not, there's a table outside. All right, sign up for life group, really, really important. Study scripture, prayer, build it into your pattern, into your habits, right? I connect it with reading scripture, right? And so that's when I do that. When I read scripture, I pray. That's just how I do it. I would encourage you to do the same thing. It seems to make sense to me. But if not, then find a habit wherever it is. Maybe you don't want to read scripture in your car, but praying in your car is pretty easy, not while you're driving with your eyes closed, okay? But maybe if, maybe for for 10 or 15 minutes before you go to work or maybe at lunch or maybe whatever it is or maybe before you go to sleep at night, build prayer into your pattern, into your habits. Worship. You're here this morning. We're worshiping together, but we worship whenever we're together and we don't have to be together to worship. I have certain playlists on Spotify that help me worship. Now, worship isn't always connected to music, but music helps me worship. And so I use music a lot to help me worship. And, and I worship God often through my work. So depending on what I'm doing for my work, I might listen to certain things. And that might seem weird to you, but it makes sense in my mind. I listen to certain things so that I'm worshiping God through my work. I worship together with you, my brothers and my sisters in Christ on, on Sunday mornings. I worship with my life group when we meet together. We worship when we, when we pray and we study God's word. All those are acts of worship. Worship, evangelism. I know this is one you guys look at and you go, wait a minute, that's spiritual discipline? Yep. Yes. Sharing the gospel is a spiritual discipline. It's part of the Christian life. As a matter of fact, it's the mission that God has given the church, evangelism, to go and to share the gospel, to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. Build it into your pattern. Who are you praying for? Who are you having spiritual conversations with? How is that going? Service, who are you serving? Where are you serving? We have a great opportunity to talk to uh, Sarah at Alternatives this morning. And if you don't know where to serve, and maybe you have a, a heart for the life of of the unborn or, or just young moms and, or dads that, that find themselves in a difficult situation in life, talk to, talk, to, talk to Sarah about what it might look like to, to volunteer at Alternatives. Serve here at Grace. There's all kinds of opportunities to serve, but you need to be serving. It's part of a spiritual discipline. Stewardship, our finances and, and giving is part of our spiritual discipline. Fasting, there's more than just this list. This is a, a, a list that to start with, but all of these are found in scripture, every single one of them. And if you were to just take this list alone and add it to the habits of your life, 
you would be well on your way to living the Christian life. But it takes effort and it takes discipline and none of those things come easy. John Wooden, famous coach, said this. He said, discipline yourselves and others won't need to. I like that. Discipline yourselves and others won't need to. Self-control is a, is, a, is a fruit of the Spirit, but that doesn't mean it's magically true of all Christians. It takes effort and it takes discipline. I have a group of guys that I meet with on, on Wednesday morning. It's just a small group of guys, and, we'll all, and what we do is we get up really early in the morning. Well, for me, it's really early. Maybe for you, it's not. But it's, uh, you know, I wake up at like, what, 5.30 or something like that, and, and we meet at 6 a.m., and, uh, and we, we have breakfast, and we talk about scripture we've read. We talk about whether we've had spiritual conversations. We talk about some of these things. Talk about how to study God's word. Have those people in your life, whether that's your life group or some other place, having that in your life. Self-discipline is part of the Christian life. We take faith. We add to faith virtue. We add to virtue knowledge. We add to knowledge self-control. And just like everything else in life, if you want to have a fruitful, spiritual life, self-control and discipline are part of that. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much.